All right. Hey, Hope. Hey, honey. <laughs> All right, everyone. Welcome to the Girl CEO Show, the playground for powerful women. And today I'm so excited because I have one of my favorite people, my friend, mm -hmm. and also a woman who is breaking barriers and shattering glass ceilings on the line with us, Miss Hope Weissman. <laughs> Thank you. Wonderful intro. <laughs> well, first and foremost, congratulations on all of your success. I'm so proud of you and every single thing that you're doing. You know, one of the things that I love, love, love about you is how committed you are um, in your business and how you're really dedicated to showing people that there are women who are dominating this lane and making major impact. So let's jump right in. How did you get started um, in the cannabis industry? Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much for that. Um, I got started. So I had just graduated from college okay. and um, I spent my entire time in college pursuing a career in investment banking. So I had interned at JP Morgan um, most of my summers while I was in college. And then um, I had a full-time offer from a bank in Atlanta. I graduated from Spelman College and I was working full-time, um, studying for my Series 7, 63, anybody that knows what that is. It was an intense time in my life. Um, and I remember being at work and I was seeing all of these uh, advertisements and different uh, features, news features about legal cannabis on the East Coast. Okay. Um, and I just was really intrigued because I understood that this was a market that it wasn't necessarily emerging like brand new. It's a market that already had um, a whole bunch of customers. It already had um, an industry and it was just flipping from uh, unregulated to a regulated market. So I already knew the market size was huge, probably much bigger than what was predicted. Um, and I knew that this was an opportunity to begin like a wealth uh, wealth generational, uh, generational wealth building opportunity for my family. So for me, I just was, you know, looking into, all right, how's this going to work? Sounds a lot like alcohol prohibition. I knew that the easiest way to get involved in a new industry is at the ground floor level. Um, okay. I'm not independently wealthy. So I knew that the only way I was going to get in was early. So that's how my journey started. I love it. I love it. Now, let's talk a little bit about how you were raised, because, you know, there are a lot of people are, that are probably like, well, how did you grow up? Or, you know, what was your interest in cannabis? And many people don't know this, but like you have always been into cannabis. And this is something that you told me, you know, growing up, you were like, OK, kind of embarrassed to say, like, yeah. you know, I'm into cannabis because it has such um, this everyone has such a negative outlook on it. So can you kind of talk about like your experience with cannabis growing up and how it led you to where you are right now? Yeah. So I'm born and raised in Prince George's County, Maryland. Um, for those of you that don't know, there are a lot of affluent Black people here. Um, so I was raised around um, all my friends, parents, doctors, lawyers, um, Indian chiefs, as people like to say. So I, you know, I wasn't exposed to drugs like super early in my age. You know, I honestly, the first time I ever saw any type of drug, including cannabis, was my freshman year of high school. And I was going to a predominantly white high school in Annapolis. And that was the first time I really was exposed to anything like that. Um, I was exposed to cannabis recreationally right around that time, like ninth grade, 10th grade. And um, I remember the first time I ever used cannabis, which was with one of my best friends, older brothers, and like all his friends. And it's funny because he's a huge industry advocate. So shout out Kevin Ford in Uplift Maryland. Um, but the first time I ever used cannabis, I was like, oh, I kind of like, like the way I feel right now. All of my girlfriends used it and they were like, ew, I hate this. I hate how it makes me feel. And I thought that was interesting the way I reacted versus the way that they did. Um, now that I'm older, I realize that, you know, we all have endocannabinoid systems, which is um, these are receptors in our brain that receive the cannabinoids like THC and CBD and the hundreds other ones, which within the um, cannabis compound, within all of the compounds in the plant, 
Um, we've received these uh, receptors in our brain. It's natural. We already have them in us. And they bring us to homeostasis, which is like a balanced state when you are your healthiest. Wow. Um, so my endocannabinoid system reacted well to canna cannabis at a very early age. So me, look, you know, growing up, I had used it probably from like, honestly, my parents might be mad, but age 16 <laughs> on. <laughs> and I was a high performer, um, highly successful. I had done really well in school, got great grades, grew up doing pageants. So, you know, it didn't slow me down at all. It actually enhanced me. Um, I don't really believe in uh, use the way that I was using it that young, um, especially now that I truly understand the science behind it. However, you know, it opened my mind. And when I saw the opportunity, I wasn't jaded by the stigma of the plant, which is completely fabricated, by the way. I mean, it, it's it was on purpose made to make people afraid of the plant so that, you know, this industry could not flourish as well as so we could create a whole uh, criminal uh enterprise, a whole criminal um, targeting of, of black and brown communities as well. So, you know, I wasn't jaded by that. And I, I attribute that to my early usage. Yeah, I, I love that. And, you know, one of the things that I also admire is the support groups and, and the love and, you know, all the things that you are putting in to place to make cannabis more talked about and more normalized right now. And um, why is it important? Why do you feel as though it's important for us to hear uh, about cannabis and people who are starting and owning um, cannabis on these panels and different events now? Because I see that you're working really hard to bring more awareness to it overall. Totally. Well, you know, this industry, like I said, going from unregulated to regulated, um, there's a lot of opportunity here from an economic standpoint and from a criminal justice reform standpoint, but I'm going to stick on the economic piece of it and all of this opportunity. Um, so many people saw what was happening and because it was happening from a legislative perspective, traditionally, the people who jump on first are politicians, financial people, people who understand how politics work, right? So as the industry was flipping to a regulated industry and they see the billions of dollars set to be made, because like I said, this industry already had a market. So we already knew uh, the opportunity that was there, right? The politicians and the financial gurus, the Wall Street guys, they were the first ones to flip. Many of them never participating in the culture. In fact, many of them helping to participate in prohibition previously. But now that they understood, look, you know, uh, cannabis is becoming legal, whether we like it or not, we might as well participate. Um, I understood that the only way to get in, like I said before, would be at the ground floor level. So I was able to kind of sneak in there as the garage was closing. But I also understood that unless I wanted to see this industry um, turn out, you know, to be like the tech industry and many other industries where we're playing catch up, you know, as black people trying to infiltrate and take our share of it. This is an industry that was literally built on our backs. That gives me fuel to want to show others and to also blaze down a trail yeah. and make way for those people in those communities and descendants of those families that have been disenfranchised to have a place in this industry. It's just simply, I mean, to me, if, if things were fair and square, it'd be a no brainer. But unfortunately, that's not how uh, our country is set up. And this industry is not being built fair. Um, and it takes advocates like myself and, you know, many other people that are working, uh, you know, really hard in this industry to be able to make sure it happens. So I'm excited. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, you know, just stood out to me was you just talking about how so many people have suffer, you know, backlash through cannabis. And now, you know, some are still incarcerated because of cannabis and and right. now it's legally um, being sold in different states and it just it's just like unacceptable it's like why are these people still incarcerated for things that are now profitable to the government yeah yeah i mean it's, it's actually insane and king cook the name of my dispensary is mary and maine um it's in capitol heights maryland off of central avenue if anybody knows we're open now um, but yeah, it's really, uh, it's actually kind of crazy <laughs> and unfortunate, but like I said, I mean, this is not new. 
You know, this isn't new. If when people find ways to capitalize off of any product, you know, when the government figures out how to do it, or once they figure out it's happening, whether they like it or not, they're going to figure out a way to regulate it. So that's what's happening in cannabis. And, you know, we call like the legacy market people that operated um, before regulation. Okay. We, call it the, we don't call it the black market because black is not bad. Um, the legacy market, and also these people are not bad people. The legacy market deserves an opportunity um, as well. And someone just asked, are you guys talking about social equity? That's what a lot of states have created programs um, centered around social equity that are aimed to include um, people who have been have had some run-ins with the law or who have uh, been raised in uh, disenfranchised areas. So every state qualifies what social equity is a little different, um, but essentially that's what social equity means. Yeah. And let's get into the build out in the process, because one of the things that um, is just really interesting to me is how difficult it has become to start run and own a actual dispensary. I see yeah. people say things like they're making it, they're intentionally making it hard and difficult for especially black and brown business owners to get this licensing. Uh, the paperwork is difficult. I'm also hearing that the price is crazy, right? And no one really knows um, how much it costs to, to go through the process to, to get this licensing. And it's not something that an everyday person can even fill out or go through that process to actually accomplish. Or someone not, may not even be in the financial position to yeah. take that on. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, it's because of the regulation surrounding it, right? So, you know, there are certain standards that you're going to have to meet. Um, and this is like a base standard pretty much in any state. Um, you're going to have to meet certain security regulations. You're going to have to have certain positions depending on the type of license. You're going to have to um, be in certain areas. Also, just the fact of owning a brick and mortar location, no matter what industry you're in, um, is, is expensive. Um, and then also, you know, I think a lot of people compare the cost of doing business of a legacy business and then the cost of doing business in the regulated market. They're never going to be the same. At the end of the day, when you're in an unregulated industry, you didn't have any banking, you didn't have a requirement of cert or even a customer service standard, you know, that your customers are going to be expecting of you. You know, they're going to allow certain things. You can barter with your prices and all of that stuff in the legacy market. You can't do that in a regulated business where you have all these different standards you have to comply by. And then on top of that, you're paying regular business taxes and all of these things. When in fact, you're actually paying more than the regular taxes because we have a tax code that we have to comply with because cannabis is a schedule one narcotic, which wow. is crazy, which means that um, schedule one technically means that it has no medicinal benefit. Um, and that it's highly addictive. We know that these are two things that are not true. So there's a lot of talk about rescheduling or descheduling um, uh, cannabis. But yeah, it's very difficult to get these licenses. A lot of states, most states um, have some type, well, all of them have some type of licensing process processes. And these can be extremely uh, competitive merit-based applications. So that means for those that might not, under not understand me, they might have 10 applications or 10 licenses available in that state. And then you will have to put in an application and compete with the other people who are applying. Um, this can be really difficult for someone that doesn't have deep pockets because at the end of the day, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'd like to compare application merit-based applications to like a test, an open book test being graded on a bell curve. It's yeah. like at the end of the day, me and you can write the same exact thing but someone has to get a higher score and someone has to get a lower score, right? And at the end of the day too, a lot of the times the differences there are based off of experiences, right? So um, a lot of the times it's like, if I can afford to you know, go out and find the best of the best in every field and add them, say, hey, I'm gonna give you $2,000 if I could just use your resume and your name, um, we'll have an employment contract that's really loose. So if you don't end up re really wanting to work for me, you don't have to. But I'm going to put like this all-star team together for the application process. I'm going to beat you. 
I, even if you and I write the same thing, you know, but I might have spent a million dollars applying and that's at risk capital. Um, so those are the types of processes that a lot of social equity programs are right now fighting against and they're making the process easier. They're trying to create programs that prioritize people with certain demographics. So Maryland's about to have a licensing process again. This is the first time really since 2019 and um, the qualifications uh, to meet social equity status uh, are that pretty much you live within, uh, they have a list of zip codes that were the most disproportionately impacted in the state. Um, you had to have gone to public school in Maryland for five out of, for five years out of your life. And you had to have, or you had to have lived in one of this, these impacted uh, zip codes for five out of the 10 years or have gone to a college that 40% of the people who attend are eligible for Pell Grants. Pretty much HBCUs and the University of Baltimore, I believe. Um, so, you know, there's, they're creating opportunities and that has come from advocates, you know, fighting these licensing processes, going to uh, bill hearings and saying, this is not fair. Talking to administrations and commissions across this, the country and saying like, hey, here I am a black woman that won my license in my state, I had no help no preferences, no nothing. And these are what my struggles were. And I've been able to help people combat them in um, other states. But yeah, it's definitely difficult. I'm going to say, you know, when we say like, oh, it's more difficult for Black people, I think that's, that's, not, that's not directly designed by like the cannabis industry. I think that's just systemic period in America. You know, like the things that are harder for us are like 10 times harder in cannabis. Like, not being able to go out and get business loans. Like no matter your color, the SBA does not loan to cannabis companies. Most banks don't loan to cannabis companies. So like your average Joe Blow, even if Joe Blow is white, is not getting a loan to open up these businesses. So, you know, I do want that to be known, but I think as a black person in this industry, it's that much harder because of all of these other barriers that we all got to jump through. And then it's like the systemic pieces that affect black Americans make it 10 times harder. When in reality, it should be 10 times easier for black Americans because probably your cousin, daddy, brother, or even you as a woman has somehow been impacted by the law in, you know, in relation to cannabis in some way. Do you think that the new initiatives that are being put in place are actually going to help people start, own, and operate actual dispensaries? Because I'm hearing the, I'm hearing the go to college, I mean, go to a local school for five years. I'm hearing, you know, you have to grow up in the zip code, but are they supporting them financially to obtain these licenses? You know, every, like I said, every state has their own thing going on. Okay. So I brag a lot about Marion, Maryland, because <laughs> this is my home state. And I fought a lot for a lot of this legislation that has come out, but I could talk about other states as well. So there are some states that uh, give out funding for people who qualify as social equity. Like I said, every state qualifies social equity completely different. So make sure you check that out. Um, Maryland has a fund and they've been doing, they really are putting their money where their mouth is. Um, they have a fund that's going to offer uh, interest-free or just full-on grants to interest-free loans or full-on grants to people who are applying, who qualify as social equity in Maryland. You can find out if you qualify right now. Um, and they're uh, giving you these loans or grants. It's up to you how you want to take it. The grant funding is taxed. The loan isn't, of course. Um, and then they're also providing technical assistance. So like I've even been in talks with the state about like, you know, how I can offer my assistance there. Um, and there are a lot of other states that do that. I know New Jersey, their economic development uh, department just gave out like $35,000, loans to social equity groups um, that are, you know, in the middle of their process, but needed some extra money to maybe finish their build outs or get through their zoning process. So New Jersey's doing great work. I know California, the different cities in California have had some really great programs, the city of Oakland. Um, and I think that these are all programs that can be modeled in states that are coming on board too. So yeah, a lot of states are talking about ways to provide this funding, um, but it's really not coming from outside of the industry right now. It's not like you have 
um, you know, other companies supporting it. You see some big Fortune 500s in the background investing in cannabis through like subsidiaries and stuff like that. But like they're not putting money up for this industry yet. It's not happening. And you're not getting regular traditional bank loans yet. The only people that may have a chance are like these multi, you know, these billion dollar cannabis companies. They feel a little bit more comfortable with them. But as you can guess, none of them are run by black people. Yeah. And and let's kind of talk about the barriers and, and some of the challenges that you are still experiencing, even as a legal owned and operating dispensary. Um, let's talk about banking, because I want people to know what this really looks like if you're trying to get into this industry. Yeah. So it's funny, banking, when I first started in like 2014, 2015 to now has evolved significantly. However, there's still, it's still not typical banking access like you would for any other business or even your personal accounts. So back in 2014, 2015, I remember we opened a regular Bank of America account. Um, and, you know, we went through the application process. And after we won, we actually then our bank account was closed. And it's like, hey, you know, you can't bank with us here. So typically, any let, mm -hmm. let, me, let, let me run this back really quick. So you won, mm -hmm. able to start the business. You then take money and you deposit it into a bank. Mm -hmm. And then your bank account is randomly closed. Sent us a check in the mail. Mm -hmm. wow. So and then it's like, you can't bank here. You know, and then that business name is barred, it's done. So at that point, it's like, all right, let me not go to like Wells Fargo or, you know what I mean? Like, that's not it. Um, we started to talk to our other industry peers. We realized that like state chartered banks were a better look. Also, we were, you know, talking to everyone else in the industry in Maryland. So that back in, you know, 2015, 16, when we won our license, uh, there was like really like one bank in Maryland that was banking with cannabis companies. Wow. And um, pretty much everybody was there. And in most states, there was like one or two banks or a credit union that would work with cannabis companies. And typically what they do is they just charge an extra fee to have a special type of account. And most of these banks had to create almost an entire new um, department. Let's also tell them the fee. <laughs> the fees are like, you know, like 800 to like a thousand, maybe $2,000, depending on the type of account or the volume going through your account. Um, these people, so, and at first you're like, oh, that's so much money. But at the end of the day, these banks literally created a, a new department of people that literally sit around and they're doing like risk assessments all day and okay. every piece of money they coming in, you know, they're tracking it. There's a compliance standard. Um, they connect with our state systems. There's a state tracking system, a seed to sell tracking system in every state. Some are more robust than others. Um, but you know, in Maryland, uh, they track everything the state does. And so they can see all of it being transferred to different licenses. And at what point the bank has access to this as well. And everything has to correlate. So there's somebody there kind of checking all of that behind you. So, yeah, the fees can get, you know, especially earlier in the industry, you might be paying an extra two to three thousand dollars a month just to have a bank account and to be able to deposit the cash that you get. And then also because of banking and all of this stuff, because it's federally illegal and most banks are federally insured, they can't take our money. Payment processors don't take our money. So credit cards and debit cards, they weren't allowed in the industry till very recently. And even now, it's really a workaround. Um, if anyone goes to a dispensary, likely what they do and what they do at ours, they do something called a cashless ATM. Um, so this is where you go in, you buy something, let's say it's $41. That's your total. The dispensary will have to charge you $45. They're going to have to charge you in increments of at least $5 so that the charge looks at, on the other end like an ATM fee and you give back that, you know, $4 and change. What? And that's kind of how people get around being able to even use debit cards and all of that. So it does make it difficult for retailers because, you know, you can't offer this traditional uh, shopping experience that people are used to. And they don't, you know, people, uh, your typical consumer is not looking at laws and regulations or even care about all that. They're just like, how come I can't come in your store and use my Apple Pay? Yeah. You know, and it's just like, look. Honestly, it's a privilege that you can even buy legal cannabis here. There are people in the U.S. right now that can't walk into a store somewhere and they're still, you know, buying cannabis other ways. 
So it's really, that's how I really feel. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, I want to be able to, and I'm working to be able to offer you this typical and regular shopping experience, but we have more regulation to, to work through more stigma to break through before that happens. Absolutely. And when do you think this is going to change? Do you think it's like getting to that point? Do you see this being the case for another year or two where people can't come in and, and use Apple Pay and those types of things to, you know, buy cannabis? It's going to be all about what happens at the federal level, right? So I talked a little bit about like uh, the Schedule One controlled substance status. Right now, there's a lot of talk and there's movement at the federal level to uh, reschedule cannabis to Schedule Three. Schedule three um, is still a controlled substance. It still has to be regulated and all that good stuff, but um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have any medicinal value and it's not highly addictive uh, the way that it is classified now alongside heroin. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And then all types of other things um, that we know is just not true. Um so I think that once that changes, you know, then you're going to see payment processors uh, open up to the idea. Um, also, if we completely deschedule cannabis, um, there's the Safer Banking Act. The Safe Banking Act was the first version of it. You might have seen some headlines about it over the past few years. There's been like eight or nine different versions of that bill that have passed the House at the okay. federal level and they got stopped at the Senate. Right now, there's a version of the bill that's going through um, the Senate. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, right now they're saying it has some legs and the safer banking bill will also give us some payment processor opportunity too. So it's really just movement at the federal level. Um, how quickly do I think this is going to happen? I have learned to stop predicting the federal movement of cannabis because like, I mean, we have been, I remember when I first got into the industry, everyone's like, oh yeah, in like five years, it's going to be federally illegal, federally legal, yeah. all this stuff. And, you know, it's been like almost 10 years later and we're still like, I, you know, I don't know. And I've also found politics, um, especially at the federal level to be like a lot of positioning and all this stuff that like, I realize it's always not what meets the eye. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how long it'll be. Something that you're always talking to me about, <laughs> you know, when we're together is the difference between legal dispensaries and smoke shops. So mm -hmm. I want to get into the difference between the two. Uh, mm -hmm. This is something that you are always talking about. You, you're always just kind of preaching like, no, I have a legally operated and licensed dispens dispensary, I am not a smoke shop. Mm -hmm. right? You always tell me there's a difference between the two. You also tell me that one is kind of illegal and one is legal. Can you talk to me about the difference between owning a smoke shop and owning a licensed dispensary? Okay. So it depends where you are, what you call different shops. Um, I think what Ronnie is referring to right now is especially like in the DMV area, there are these shops that are like gift shops, right? That's what they call them, a gift shop, or, you know, sometimes it's just a smoke shop. So if it's a smoke shop, if someone's calling themselves a smoke shop and they sell, let's say like Delta 8 products or, um, you know, CBD flour or whatever it may be. Um, in 2018, uh, Federal Congress passed this uh, a, a memo or a bill, the Farm Bill, and it pretty much uh, drew a line in the sand with two different forms of cannabis, hemp and cannabis sativa, um, th that produces THC over 0.3%, right? 0.03%. And that's what you have to be licensed in a dispensary to sell. Under that, it's classified as hemp. Um, and technically you can sell that over state lines. You can ship it. It can go in gas stations and all that good stuff. Um, Delta eight is a manipulated, you know, a chemically induced product of 
that plant and it is psychoactive. It does have THC in it. Um, also, people are producing like THCA flour, all that stuff. I'm not saying any of that is necessarily bad. Some of it certainly is. Some of it is not. Um, but, you know, for me, regulation is good. You know, regulation ensures that we have a product that is healthy for people and that we can recall it if it's not, that we can track where it is, um, who's selling it, how they're selling it, that there are safety standards in place all of that. So when people are participating in the unregulated industry, I definitely have sympathy because of the difficulty that it takes to uh, get into this space. However, especially because I operate within this regulated space, you know, I understand too, it's like, look, this is in place for a reason. And I think that some of it is a little overkill. We're working to kind of like, you know, even out the standards, but I know that's why a lot of people go that way. So in like the DC area and a lot of other places, there's this loophole that you can like gift cannabis. So what people do is they open up actual storefronts, they're selling cannabis and they're giving it to you, you know, they're, or they're selling a t-shirt or a sticker and then they're giving you a gift of cannabis. Um, that's again, perfectly fine. No, and I don't have any issue with it. I also understand that a lot of people like simply, it's a very highly competitive in industry. It takes a lot of capital to open. So I'm, you know, I completely get it, but those aren't regulated, you know, they're not. And at the end of the day, you're subject to um, federal or, you know, state level prosecution and you're opening yourself up to that. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I look at it like, you know, get it how you live. I love to see black people in this industry, however they, they get into it. But I, what I'm doing and what I'm trying to do in this space is create spaces even for them and, you know, create legal avenues for them to get into the industry and present other ways rather than, you know, really risking your livelihood, <laughs> risking everything, you know, to do it, to have your name blacklisted so you can't get a license later. You know, it's not necessarily worth it. So I think a big piece of this is exposing people to all the different ways you can be in the industry rather than just like owning a dispensary outright. Yeah. And what are some of the consequences that can come along with the gifting um, and not having the actual legal licensed dispensary? Um, you know, the good thing about it, especially in D.C., is that community has organized. So like they've, they've protected themselves to an extent. Um, but some of the things that, you know, I've heard come down the pipeline, like in New York with a lot of the unregulated shops and stuff, they're coming after the landlords. Most of these people don't own the buildings that they operate in, right? They got a lease. And most of these people with the lease have a note from a bank that's federally insured. So at the end of the day, the bank gets when that cannabis is being sold out of one of their locations, the bank will come to the landlord and say, hey, I'm calling your note. Wow. Um, yeah. You know, so pay it or get out and I'm taking your building. Um, so that's what uh, a lot of people are doing in New York. New York also created a, a task force to actually like go after these people. And they have a whole process that's um, detailed. The goal is not to criminalize these people, though, because, right, we already had a war on drugs. We're not trying to rehash that, especially because we know a lot of the people running these unregulated shops are people from the legacy market and people that look like us. So the goal is not to arrest them, but it's to simply, you know, be like, look, at the end of the day, we have a regulated process set up. You have to go through that system and it's not fair. And a lot of the times they're doing, they're coming at it um, towards the landlords. In DC, they have set up a process to allow for um, the gift shops to become regulated shops. So, you know, they, they laid that, that timeline out. They said, hey, we're going to give you all another year to operate however you want. This is the process to, you know, become a licensed shop. We hope you do it. If not, in a year, coming after your landlords. So. Wow. Yeah. And, and I think this is just important to know because there's so much false information out on the Internet and you really don't know what's real. You don't know what's fake. You don't know what the true process is. So to have someone like you to be able to come in and say, hey, like, don't fall for that, because I've seen people you know, teaching courses and classes on how to start a smoke shop or, you know, gifting. And I'm like, dude, is this really the process? So to know that, no, like this is not how it needs to be done. If you want to succeed and have longevity in this industry, um, it's a get, get rich quick <laughs> I'm not it. or it, not even rich, make some money for a few years. That's yeah. what it is. And, and I know that you are also in the process um, with coming up 
with the curriculum that walks people through getting their licensing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Definitely. So I'm developing a program, Legal and Licensed, and the goal of Legal and Licensed is to really just give you all of the background of, you know, because I've applied in many different states. I've consulted with people in many different states. I've, I've actually worked with different states as they develop their programs, right? Um, so the Legal and License is to kind of expose you to everything that could possibly be in any application process across the country in any state, right? Just so you're aware. Um, the main thing is people get taken advantage of by consultants and lawyers and even the process themselves, you know, just psyching themselves out and thinking they have to do more than they really have to, or just, you know, paying for help because they simply don't even understand what that means. I have to write an operating plan. What is that? You know, I got to, you know, write a diversity plan. I don't really know what they want to see. Um, so, you know, all of these different things, legal and licensed is just here to break down everything for you, show you real examples of how application processes go, tell you all my tips and tricks on how I go through the process, how I stay organized, because I think that's probably the biggest thing going through the process is a lot of paperwork. You got to request, you know, everybody on your team has to do financial and criminal background checks. Um, everyone's going to have to, you know, submit their work history. It's, there's just so many different components of an application. It's a lot to keep track of, especially when you have to apply within, let's say, like 30 days. So I'm going to kind of break all that down to you, um, ways to look at like partnerships and um, to raise money. Um, I'm going to give you access to different resources that have worked for me. So yeah, I'm super excited about legal and license. It's going to also cultivate a community of people that are applying for licenses across the country so that you can kind of talk through do's and don'ts as well as potentially partner with each other. So I'm just really excited to build this network and, um, you know, give people the resources and tools I wish I had when I was coming, you know, coming through this process, I didn't really have too many people. Shout out to M for MM, Minorities for Medical Marijuana. That was the first group that ever kind of like took me in, hugged me and gave me any type of guidance or help in this space. So yeah, I want to create more spaces like that. And to King Cook, no, as of July 1st of this year, Maryland went adult use. So you don't need a medical card to shop at my dispensary or any other dispensary in Maryland. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, was that a thing initially? Did you initially need that to, um, you know, purchase cannabis from your actual location? Yeah. So you did need a medical card at first. So just to give everybody a timeline on how this worked out for me, I first, you know, caught wind of what was going on 2014. Okay. Um, I applied 2015. I won my license 2016. Moved home 2017. <laughs> then 2018, we opened. Long process. By uh, 2017, 2018, that's when the first dispensaries were opening in Maryland. It was medical only. So you had to have a medical card to come shop with us or at any other dispensary in Maryland. Um, and, you know, you qualified. There was a list of different ailments. Um, Maryland also had a catch all phrase that was, you know, pretty much like that any other ailment that your provider, uh, recommended cannabis for, you could get your medical card. So Maryland had a somewhat robust medical program at 150,000 patients. It pretty much stalled that um, for the first five to six years. And then, uh, like I said, July 1st, we went adult use. That happened through uh, legislation, um, really through a ballot initiative. So what had happened is, uh, two, I think it was like 2018, 2019, they introduced or it was might maybe 2019, 2020, they introduced legalization bills that didn't end up passing because there was just a lot of back and forth. Then 2021, um, there was a bill to pretty much put cannabis legalization on a ballot initiative that year, and it passed uh, overwhelmingly um, in Maryland. Everybody voted yes for cannabis. And then in 2022, they created the bill that essentially created the program because, you know, the constituents voted yes. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and then that bill broke down all the different license types and all of that. Yes. For anybody in Maryland, October 14th, we're having a little block party. New impressions is playing. If you like go, go come out. We're excited to see you. Yeah. Um, 
what would you say to anyone who is wanting to get started in the industry right now? What would be the first five things they should do to dip their toe in the water? Okay. So if you want to get into the industry right now, one, you know, where do you want to open up? And then what's happening there from a legislative perspective? Can't do anything unless you can get legal and licensed. So that's step one. What's happening there? Are they like in the middle of the process? Are applications coming out soon? Is it a rolling process? Do you need to be um, showing up and testifying at bill hearings to get the bill to be what you want it to be? Step one. Step two, I would say, is kind of break down the application process at that point. Is it merit-based? Is it competitive? Is it a limited situation? Is it rolling and you just have to meet qualifications? Is it a situation where you're going to have to go to your local municipality and get their support before you can get your state license? You know, you kind of have to figure that out, break down the application process and create kind of what I call, you know, your like roadmap of all the different things you have to do break down how to do the, how to do this in um, you know my course and in my community. And then I'd say the third thing you do at that point is figure out all the different uh, components of your team that you need in the pre-application stage. I say there's three stages to all of this pre-application, during your application and then post award. And then you know there's operational and all those fun stuff. but you know this is for like the beginner entrepreneur in this space. Um, and then once you're kind of, you know, you put your team together on the people that are going to have actually help you execute putting in your application, your fourth, uh, step would be to, uh, make sure that you're fit, you know, following all the regulations and all the rules. Uh, A lot of these application processes, especially the ones that are competitive or for whatever reason, you know, like to, uh, make sure you meet qualifications before you're entered into like, let's say a lottery or whatever it may be. They, you have to follow the directions to a T. They say Times New Roman, you put it in Arial, your application gets thrown out. You know, they said 12, no pictures, you got, you, you know, you like this on the front, you're getting thrown out. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to follow the directions to a T. So is there limited things that you could do marketing-wise when running a cannabis home company? Let's talk about that. Even social media. For sure. Um Okay, so like you're going to be held to advertising and marketing standards by your state, potentially even like the county or city you operate in through like a zoning ordinance, potentially. And then there's like another layer of it with like all these third party companies, let's say Meta for Instagram and Facebook or TikTok or whatever it may be. They have their own regulations around cannabis, even like, you know, uh, let's say a, a company like a, I don't believe Teachable or any of them do this, but even those companies can knock you off their sites if they see that you're using cannabis. Wow. Eventbrite can knock you off their site if they see that you're using cannabis. So there are certain ways, you know, there are certain things you have to comply with at like your, from a regulatory body that directly is over top of your license. And that might be like in Maryland, we cannot put out any advertisements that we know will reach people under 18. We have to only work in publications that, um, you know, are 18 and up. We have to have an age gate on our website, on our even social media channels. Most of us have it in our bio. This content is for 18 and up. Every picture we're putting up, uh, you know, has to have that. Um, Can't use certain keywords on social media. They will immediately take you off and or discontinue. Like I know there was like a whole spew for like three or four years where every cannabis company was getting deleted from Instagram you know, or shadow banned. Um, yeah, so it's really bad. TikTok, you can't even, if you blow a little baby bit of smoke, you delete, you know, like <laughs> TikTok, TikTok has an awesome algorithm. They not let nothing pass. Um, TikTok is real funny. So <laughs> like try and look up anything on about weed on TikTok. Like, Just a baby bit and you're out of there? <laughs> a little bit, like a little bit. You're done. Um, (laughs) so yeah, advertising is hard, you know, Google ads, we can't run the same ads. Like, you know, we can't reach customers the same way. A lot of these big, you know, just software companies don't even work with us. So everything is like piecemealing it together. Um, it makes it really difficult to run a business like this too, because like a lot of the automation tools that people are used to and just the things that make their life easier, like we can't use that. Um, so it's a lot of like, you know, piecing things together and and having to just be innovative on how we reach our customers. Well, let me just say 
good thing that you stayed the course. Let me just say that. Let me give you your flowers, friend, and say good thing that you stayed the course. Um, you are not new to this. You know, you got started in this industry in 2014, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it's been a long journey for you. It's been a very long journey for you. And recently we celebrated you because um, cannabis became legal in the state of Maryland. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that was the day you hit the lottery. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I saw an industry friend like the night before and he was like, it's Christmas. And I was like, yeah, yeah. It, it really felt good just because, I mean, like I remember uh, on July 1st, it was a Saturday, um, you know, before the July 4th holiday too. So it was just like perfect timing, you know? Uh -huh. And the line was like wrapped around my store. And I remember I just like went to my office and I cried a little bit because it's like, wow, we've been open for years. And like, this is what I imagined on day one, five years ago. And that's not, that's not what it was. Um, and, you know, all of the sacrifices that my family, I started this business with my mother who works side by side with me every day. Um, you know, and also our first investor is a longtime family friend. Like they put me up on their shoulders. They overextended themselves. This wasn't money they had sitting around, you know, like they, they had to go out and really take a risk because of something that I believed in. Yeah. Um, so to see now how many people have been shopping with us and that have had great experiences and that I've been able to make a difference in the industry from an advocacy standpoint, and that I'm actually seeing my work, um, you know, mean something. And then also my business doing well, like, yeah, I mean, I don't like want to be emotional about it. It really means the world to me. Yeah. I'm so excited. I, I hope that like, 50 other little black girls get to have this feeling that I feel right now. Yeah. And let me just say, you know, you are just the kind of person that you are just not moved by who you are in, in the set in the success that you're having. I'm always like, Oh, do you know who the hell you are? Like, do you realize what you're doing? You, you are paving the way. Like you need to bask in this moment and people need to hear your voice. And even having you here today, uh, it was a part of me pushing you out of your shell. I'm like, you are getting on the show and people need to see and know that it's possible for other black women. Yeah shake the table up you know we hear stories of men dominating this lane all the time but you all need to know that there are successful black women who are 100% black owned 100% woman owned who are dominating this lane and they're doing it at a such a high level yeah and I just want to congratulate you I just want to celebrate you. We have people in the comment sections and they're like, what's the best state? Well, y'all, y'all heard Mer Merlin just legalized. Maryland legalizing. <laughs> New Jersey is a hot state. Um, <laughs> there, there's a few, but look, like over the next couple of years, a lot of states are going to be having um, application processes. And remember how I said, like, I was a part of, you know, creating the laws. You can be too. Um, go to the bill hearings, talk to your local representatives. They're a part of the conversation and they have to listen to you. You're the voter. Um, so you can organize, you can be a part of creating the laws to be what you want them to be. So, yeah. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sis. I love you. I'm so proud of you. you. Thank you. Uh, we are just going to continue to have your voice heard and you guys, let me just say this. Make sure that you go follow Hope. Hope, give them your social media yeah. and also give them your website. Totally. So um, go to my social media right now on Instagram. I am Hope So Dope. And people have really been calling me that since like middle school. I did not make that up. Um, but yes. <laughs> hope so dope part um, literally like my first usernames are like so dope 429 <laughs> um, but yes I am hope so dope if you DM me the word licensed right now on my Instagram you're going to be on my waiting list you'll be the first to see when my course drops um, follow my broadcast channel I always like send people articles and headlines of stuff going on in cannabis um, if you want to shop at my store, if you're in Maryland, D.C., Virginia, 
Delaware, anywhere close that you want to drive down. Um, we're right by Six Flags or the Commander Stadium as well. Mary and Maine. You can check us out at maryandmaine.com. You can see all the products that we carry. Um, just I'm going to go ahead and say we can only carry products made in the state of Maryland. Remember I talked about seed to sale tracking? Yeah. That's that. <laughs> um, so yeah, definitely check us out. Come find me, DM me the word licensed. I want to see everybody in the course and the community. Um, we're just here to take the industry by a storm. I love it. We're going to take, I'm going to take this one question because it's hilarious to me. The question is, Hope, if you are married, can you apply separately for the license? Yes. I would highly suggest it as well, too. Apply. <laughs> Look, this Maryland round is going to be a lottery, guys. So you're going to qualify and then you're going to go in a lottery. So look, put as many hats in the, in the bucket as you can, because you can only legally apply for two per person. All right. Make sure you all follow. I am hope so dope on Instagram. And you guys make sure that you are following the girl CEO show at girl CEO INC on Instagram. Make sure you all join our amazing membership community, guys. We are the playground for powerful women. We have tons of lessons, meetups, and events that we do for professional women and women in business as well. So make sure you join our community. Uh, you can go to www.girlceoinc to join. And I look forward to seeing you all on the inside. If you watched the show today, I would love to hear your aha moments. Shoot us a text, text social to 202-410-2903 and tell me your aha moments from today. I cannot wait to see you all break into this industry. Hope was to see more brown people <laughs> inside of this cannabis industry. Yeah. And we hope that today ignited the fire in you to make that happen. All right. Once again, thanks for joining the Girl CEO Show. Be sure to like and share this actual show with a friend. You can listen to this on all major podcast platforms as well. And I'll see you guys soon. Bye. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.